the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Welcome to Warrant Officer Retired, John McDougall. John had an Air Force engineering and flying career spanning something like 25 years. John completed three tours on caribous in Vietnam between August 64 and April 68. Also, John was deployed frequently to the difficult flying environment of Papua New Guinea. He had many other notable deployments over his career, including Kashmir, Sumatra, Sacramento and also Idaho. He joined the RAAF in 1960 as apprentice engine fitter. Within a very short time after graduation from technical training, he was serving on the first deployment of caribous with RAAF transport flight in Vietnam. John's stories about the dangers, trials and tribulations of the first few months and then his ongoing deployment for three Vietnam tours are fascinating and also inspiring. His first two tours were as an engine fitter, and his third tour was aircrew performing the very diverse and challenging duties of a caribou loadmaster engineer. Following this, John became an instructor for pilot and loadmaster engineer conversion courses. John was then posted to 482 Squadron Amberley. Numerous deployments were made from there, including four months in Sacramento, doing coal-proof load testing on F-111C aircraft and accepting four ex-United States Air Force F-111A model aircraft to replace four that the Australian Air Force had lost. In 1983, John was posted to Number 1 Squadron as Warrant Officer Engineer. He had numerous deployments from there, including bomb competition at Mount Home Air Force Base in Idaho, then to Eglin Air Force Base in Florida for aircraft trials. John retired from the RAAF on the 17th of January in 1985. Warrant Officer Retired, John McDougall, it's really nice to have your company. Thanks for taking the time to have a chat about Vietnam and your career in the Royal Australian Air Force. Oh, pleasure. Thanks, Gareth. i got to ask the obvious question. Why did you join the Air Force and when did you join the Air Force? But more importantly, why? Why? Well, I wasn't uh, academically inclined when I was at school. And I, I knew I was going to struggle in the big wide world. I was always interested in aircraft. In fact, I had designs on being a pilot, but I soon learnt that uh, I, I didn't quite measure up. And then I saw the ad for the Air Force Apprenticeship Scheme. I thought you get the best of training. I'd have a job for 15 years. You had to sign on for 15 as an apprentice. I'd get the best of training, I'd be accommodated, have meals supplied, medical, dental, uh, you could play sports on weekends and you got a few dollars a week in pay. Where did you see the ad? When you say you saw the ad, where was the ad? It was in the Sydney Sun, this is back in 1959 and uh, I used to read the paper each night when Dad came home and there was an ad for Air Force Apprentices, uh, that was about July, August of 59. I thought that would do me. So I sent off the application and 
Fortunately, I was accepted. I signed on at Wagga on the 18th of January, 1960. Now, there's a good tip for the Royal Australian Air Force this year to start putting ads back in the local newspapers so that we can actually get more people applying to a join. Well, the thing that upsets me at the moment is that governments and industry are screaming out for more apprentices because we're short of tradesmen and uh, skills, yet the Army, Navy, Air Force stopped their apprenticeship scheme back about 98. Really? When I joined, there was 150 engineering apprentices on my course, and the Army and the Navy had similar numbers, and then you had the radio apprentices in Melbourne. So you're looking at 500-odd apprentices each year went into the military, got the best training, went on to be leaders in the Air Force and industry, had the best skills. Back about 98, the government stopped the apprenticeship scheme. Well, there you go. I'm not asking you to answer this question, but it is obviously a question I need to ask someone who's currently in the Air Force. Why did they stop? And if, if they did stop, where in goodness gracious me do they get their engineers from now? Well, this is the problem. Yeah. yeah who's doing the training? Where are they coming from? Now, you did the the Apprentice Engineer Fitter course, is that correct? Uh, apprentice Engineers. They had five trades at Wagga. There was engines, airframes, instruments, electrical, armament and motor transport. And how did you end up in the engine section of it? The first year, what you did, you did three years training at Wagga. First year, all the apprentices did all the same courses, basic fitting, basic electrics, you did machine shop, how to work a lathe. You made things, you did a blacksmithing, carpentry, you know, just all general type skills. And then at the end of the first year, they asked you which of the six trades you wanted to go into. I ticked the box for engines. I got that. When you say you ticked the box for engines, could they still have decided after your first couple of years, well, we think this person would be better in that section? Or who made that decision? No, no, that was- now, that was done basically at the end of the first year with your aptitude, with your other subjects. And depending on uh, how many they had on each course, you got a second pick. So I, I selected airframes as a second choice. Some people halfway through the next year, I know one guy was struggling with the electrical side, so they put him over to the engines. Am I right in assuming that within a very short space of time after graduation from technical training, you served on your first deployment and that was with Caribous? Well, after you finish your three years at Wagga, the apprentices then go to an aircraft depot. Number one AD at Laverdon, two was at Richmond, three was at Ambly. So the apprentices were split between those depots where you worked on aircraft that were being overhauled, major overhauls where they dismantled them, and you work under supervision for 12 months. And then the following year, you then went out to an operational squadron for 12 months. So for five years, you were basically doing your apprenticeship. And then you did the rest of your term after that. After graduation then, immediately upon graduation, what were your yes. appointments? Where, where did you end up? I went to 2AD at Richmond and I had a year there. There was no vacancies on operational squadrons at the time. So I volunteered to stay at 2AD for another six months. And at the end of that, they said, where do you want to go? And Bob Menzies had just committed six aircraft to Vietnam 
So I raced down to 38 Squadron. I said, I want to go to Vietnam. And I was posted into 38 in July 64. I had three weeks at 38, a week's pre-M leave. And I was in Vietnam on the 22nd of August, 64. As an engineer with Caribous. Well, when you finish your three years at Wagga, you graduate as a fitter. Whereas the adult trainees, when they do their initial training, they come out as mechanics and they do experience in a squadron for a year or two. Then they go back to Wagga for more training and then they graduate as a fitter. That means you were pretty lucky in terms of getting the fitter's role as a reason for going to Vietnam. Oh, yeah. Well, as I say, when you graduate from Wagga after your three years, you are a fitter straight away. And for those uninitiated like me, what is a fitter's job? What does that person do? Oh, well, a, a fitter is better trained than a mechanic. In whatever trade that you want to be in, you have airframe fitters, engine fitters, motor transport fitters. What were you, John? I was engines. I did aircraft engines. So give me an example of what that would mean you had to do each day. On an operational squadron, for the first year or two, you're still under a bit of supervision, but you'd go out your pre-flight aircraft, you'd after-flight them. If they come in with unserviceabilities, you rectify them. If you had a crook engine, you would do an engine change or propeller changes. If the carby was playing up, you'd go out and do a carburetor change. You were responsible for everything from the bulkhead to the front of the propeller. Okay, well, as a fitter then, can you let us know what were some of the strengths of the caribou What were, in your, as a fitter? What were, in your opinion? Well, engine-wise and even aircraft-wise, the aircraft was very rugged, very reliable. The engines were a bit on the dirty side. They leaked oil everywhere. But that was one of the things that that come with reciprocating engine. They do tend to leak a bit. But the aircraft, it was extremely well designed for what it was supposed to do. Short Mm -hmm. takeoff and landings that could land anywhere, carry a reasonable load and fairly reliable. Just reflect for us for a moment uh, when you arrived in Vietnam. First couple of days, what was that like and what were your experiences? Well, it was a whole new ball game because none of us knew very much about the aircraft because at the beginning of 64, most of 38 Squadron went to Toronto to the factory to learn about the aircraft. And when Bob Menzies committed six aircraft to Vietnam, there was only a handful of technical people at Richmond to go. The first six aircraft had arrived at Richmond in, I think there was three in April and three in May or June. Yeah, there was no field training in those days. I say all the expertise was still in Canada. So when we arrived in Vietnam, the three aircraft of the third ferry flight, when they got to Butterworth, they were met by the orderly officer and told not to proceed to Richmond. They could turn left and go to Saigon because they'd been committed to the Vietnam War. They arrived with very little in the way of equipment. Uh, They were just ferrying the aircraft back to Richmond. They arrived and there was a couple of dozen people on the initial push. That was on the 8th of August. And then I got there on the 22nd of August. Uh, And then the next three aircraft arrived a few weeks after that. But when we got there, the Americans had accommodated us at the airfield 
right next to a large generator that was running 24-7, so it was hard to get any rest, and it was also next to the sewerage treatment plant. So the aromas weren't real pleasant either. So the CO was uh, squadron leader Chris Sugden. He'd uh, flown Boston bombers in the Second World War, flown in the Korean War, and uh, he decided that wasn't very good for the morale of the troops and work ethics and that. So he went into town, found an old hotel, a villa style, and he shifted us all into there, opened his wallet, paid the first week's rent, and we moved into town, a, a, a villa on the waterfront in Vung Tau, which was a lot quieter and uh, it didn't have the smells and aromas that the place had. <laughs> or, the, or the noise. Or the noise, that's right. Just yeah. out of interest, if there are six of, six of the caribous there and you arrive and you don't really have a lot of equipment with you, what about spare parts and things like that? Where did they come from? Well, when uh, we were committed there, part of the deal was that the Americans would supply us the spare parts. We went to Vung Tau, uh, southeast of Saigon at Cap St. Jacques, and that was a uh, U.S. Army caribou base there. So they were already geared up. And again, being a new aircraft, initially they were fairly reliable. But we had nothing in the way of work stands. We had to hunt around, scround lengths of Dexian and bits of metal, and we had to build our own work stands. We had nothing in the way of publications or tools. So the first few weeks was fairly hectic, setting ourselves up to operate the aircraft with very little in the way of uh, support for the first couple of months. So you really, really had to rely heavily on the United States for supply. Yeah, but yeah, for the uh, spares, supplies, and all that. Uh, you mentioned yeah. you mentioned your CEO, uh, Cole Sugden. Tell us about him. A very nice bloke, well organised. In fact, while the three aircraft were at Butterworth waiting to go to Saigon. He wanted to know what the aircraft could or couldn't do and what type of operations they were expected to do. And for some reason, he thought, what will the aircraft do single-engine-wise? So he taxied out one morning, started up one engine, shut one down, and he took off single-engine to see how far and how it would handle. Everyone said, well, why are you doing that? A couple of months after we'd got to Vietnam, we got a call one afternoon that one of the aircraft had had an engine failure at Fantiet, 45 minutes north of Vung Tau. It wasn't in a very secure area, and Chris didn't like the idea of leaving an aircraft there overnight. So he flew up, hopped in, started up the good engine, and he had about 10 feet to spare with the runway. I think at Butterworth he used about... Three and a half thousand feet to get off single engine, and I think Fantiet was about three thousand four hundred. But he was confident he could do it. He hopped in and took off single engine, flew the aircraft back to Vung Tau, and we did the engine change there. Yeah, Chris sounds like the sort of person that you really need to be your CEO in circumstances like that. That's right. He'd done World War Two with Boston's, and he'd done Korea. So he knew what it was like to be in tricky situations and uh, he ended up getting a bar to his DFC for uh, that and various other things that he achieved also. I believe you were actually shot at while doing some pre-flight checks. Tell us about that. We we used to start work about 4.35 of the morning to get the aircraft ready so they could take off about 6, 6.30. And uh, it was just on dawn and I was up on the wing doing the fuel and oil and doing the checks. 
and I had my head down, backside up, and I became aware of some little lights around me. And I thought, oh, that's nice, there's uh, fireflies around. (laughs) Then I thought, no, in all the time I've been here, I've never seen fireflies in the middle of an airfield. So I stopped what I was doing and looked up. It was tracer bullets coming past me because I had the sun rising behind me and I was looking into the jungle. Someone thought he'd have a bit of target practice with me, so he lined me up. If it hadn't have been for the tracer bullets, I wouldn't have known I was being used as target practice, so I did a, a quick decamp from the top of the wing. Was that your first experience facing the enemy? Yeah, probably, although I did do a trip up to Da Nang and we were going into some hot areas where we were getting fired upon and we used to take the side doors off down the back and sit there with a rifle and keep an eye out for anyone that may be taking pot shots at us. But I did have another incident when I was on the third tour. We were operating out of Play Coup up in the Highlands. At the end of the day, we asked what they had for the next day and they said that we'd done all the work that they had for us, but they could use us at Natrang. So we said, okay, we'll go to Natrang. So we decided to fly down that night to be ready for the next morning. And by the time we got to Natrang, it was about nine, ten o'clock at night, and the airfield was all shut. The Americans had gone home. Everything was in darkness. So we were taxiing in without the aid of any marshlers or any lights. So we had the taxi lights on, the landing lights. I was sitting up on top of the cockpit giving the pilots uh, wing clearance in amongst containers and freight and other aircraft. And while I was doing that, the next thing I became aware that we were being shot at too from someone up on the hill about a mile away. There was traces uh, coming down at the aircraft. I did a hasty retreat and told the pilots to turn all the lights off and keep their heads down. So that was the second time I had traces coming at me. Was there in 1966, I think it was, you you talked about a, a mortar incident? We got a mortar through the hangar at Vung Tau one night. Well, there was a couple, but uh, we had a mortar through the hangar, uh, out part of the hangar, and damaged the aircraft. On a caribou, there are normally three, pilot, co-pilot and loadmaster. Would you consider yourself in the main to be described as ground crew? To be a loadmaster on the caribous, you had to be engines or airframe fitter because when you're away from base, you have to do the maintenance on the aircraft. Uh, when you're operating away from base, you did the refueling, the re-oiling. If you had engine problems, you had to get up and open up the engines and do the repairs if you had the spares. So that's why they had a technical person on the aircraft because we were operating out in the bush for a week at a time. Sure. So you were responsible for the technical aspects of the aircraft. You did three tours of Vietnam, am I correct? Yeah, that, that is correct. How did that come about, John? Initially, when we went there, anyone and everyone that happened to be at Richmond at the time that wanted to go. So we went up and uh, did a tour. And then when we came back, the people that had been in Canada initially at the factory doing the conversion course, they went up to Vietnam. At the end of 65, the CO came down one morning on parade and said that there was a bit of a problem because everyone that was at Richmond at the time, or most of us had done a tour, and the second tour were getting ready to come home, and they were short of troops to go and replace them, 
and did anyone want to go back for a second tour? So I thought, okay, why not? So I put my hand up and went back for a second tour because at the time the, the money was too good. Oh, besides getting a lot of experience and travelling and seeing other parts of the world that you wouldn't normally get to, when we were getting ready to go, they said that your pay is tax-exempt while you're in a operational area. So I thought, that's good. And then they said, we will also pay you an allowance, and the allowance was more than what my gross pay was. So I thought, how good is this? So while we're in Vietnam, or about once a month, we'd send an aircraft to Butterworth to do a compass swing, and there'd be eight or ten guys on there to go down for a bit of R&R. And Penang was duty-free in those days. It was a good opportunity to buy your camera equipment, your yeah, Akai stereo and uh, tape <laughs> recorders and and all that. So it was a good shopping trip. And then when I came home from the first tour, I had enough money to go down and pay cash for a car. I'd just turned 21 before I finished my first tour. It's a good feeling when you can walk into the car yard, look around and say, I'll take that one and pull out the wallet and pay cash. Do you remember what you bought? Oh, yeah, it was a 1960 Vanguard sedan, phase <laughs> three, and I had it for 17 years. Well, it's a good car, I believe, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, it just kept going and going. All right, that's your first, come back after your first tour, but you got a second and a third tour. How did you end up on the third well, I tour? Went back, well, as I went back for the second because they were short of troops. At the end of 66, I was getting a, a bit sick of being dirty working on caribou engines, and they were calling for loadmasters in early 67 to fly on the aircraft. So by then I'd had a fair bit of experience on them, so I went back and I applied to become a loadmaster. One of the deals at 38 Squadron was all aircrew had to do a flying tour of Vietnam. As I said at the time, I was young and single and it was good experience, I wanted to fly. So that's how I got to go back for a third tour. In terms of the various types of freight you carried, I believe you, the RAAF, outperformed both the United States Army and the Air Force and uh, ended up with uh, 35 Squadron getting a unit citation. Is all that correct? Yes. It's called the uh, Republic of Vietnam Cross of Gallantry with Palm Unit Citation. Wow. Well, well, when we were there the first few years, the American Army had the caribous. Their rules, regulations, training wasn't as good as what we had. We wanted to show them that we were better than them anyway. So we used to work our butt off day and night. And in fact, I think it was about 66, 67, the Pentagon sent an efficiency team over to find out how we could do so much with so little. They thought we had about 25 aircraft in the squadron, but we had six. So they looked at how and what we did, and not long after that, they took the caribous off the army and gave them to the Air Force. But it still didn't work much better, and we still uh, outperformed them. I think we flew about 1.5% of the transport operations, but we carried 7 to 8% of all the freight and passengers in the country. You would have assumed if they'd sent surveyors over to see why you were so good, why that wouldn't have given them a, a set of things, well, all right, now this is what you in the American Army Air Force have to do. <laughs> well, our, our training was far better 
like, as I said, I did three years at Wagga as an apprentice before I went out to a squadron. I had an American guy come over one day. He said, what do you do on the aircraft? I said, well, I'm the engine fitter. He said, yeah, but which part? I said, well, you know, from back there at the bulkhead to the front of the propeller. He was amazed. He wanted to know what university I went to. So I said, well, uh, it's just, just three years of blogger as an apprentice. And I said, well, what do you do? And I think he, he might have been a propeller expert. Yeah, they just tend to specialise. They have a carburetor specialist and a, a propeller specialist. John, tell us about Caribou 173 and the crash landing. Well, 173 had a couple of unfortunate incidents. After I came home at the end of my first tour, it had a bit of a crash landing at High Yen down the Delta. Did a fair bit of damage, so they rebuilt it. When I was on my second tour, it had a, a, another crash landing at Bartow and it tore the left-hand undercarriage back and it went up through the flaps, bent the propeller, broke the engine and all that. So the squadron engineering officer, Wally Solomons, myself and a couple of other troops, we flew up there in a helicopter to Bartow because it ended up, became stationary. It was parked across the airstrip blocking the runway. The Americans, typical fashion, they just said, we'll bulldoze it over the edge and so we can get more aircraft in. But So we managed to hold that off. We flew in had a look at it, we determined we could rebuild it. There was about six or eight of us, and then we dragged it across the runway to the other side, parked it so the so aircraft could come in and go again. I put a new engine and propeller on, cranked it up, got it running, did a few tests. We were fairly confident the two engines would work and the fuel system would keep fuel up and the flaps worked to a certain extent. And it was flown back to Vungtau with the gear down. We set about checking it all over. Caribou 173 should end up in the War Memorial as a, as a piece of engineering brilliance by the Royal Australian Air Force engine fitters. <laughs> it is actually at the Caloundra Air Museum up there, at uh, Caboolture Air Museum. Oh, that's, that's awesome, John. You mentioned the War Memorial. Uh, there's another caribou there, uh, A4140, and that's got a bit of history in it too. Did you have because anything that- to do with that, that one? No, no. 140 was operating out of Timor back in 75, 76. I've got the story here. Uh, When the Timorese and the Indonesians were going at it, Fretland, those ones, and uh, 140 got hijacked one afternoon. And uh, they were told to take the troops back to Darwin. Well, it was going to Darwin anyway. (laughs) Uh, The aircraft was there to evacuate uh, Red Cross people, any uh, embassy staff. Um, There was some uh, missionaries, and it had Red Cross markings on the aircraft. At the time, we were neutral, but... Uh, the last shuttle of the day, they were getting ready to start up and one of the soldiers come out of the jungle with a couple of guns and hand grenades and uh, Bill Crouch was the loadmaster and he said, you're going to take us to Darwin. And he said, well, you know, no, we can't do that. We're only taking Australians. So we, he pulled the pin out of the grenade and threatened to blow everyone up. So the captain came down 
and uh, placated him and said, okay, we can take you, but you can't have any weapons on board or any of that. So we calmed down. And uh, when we said, well, you can go on board, he whistled up all the family and the village and there was about 50 people clambered on board the aircraft. He didn't have enough seats for everyone, so uh, they were sitting on the floor and the seats and they got airborne, called up Darwin and said that they had had an incident and explained what had happened. So Darwin told them to take their time because they had to get federal police, immigration, customs and everything out there. So they mm -hmm. uh, got back to Darwin. Then they had to circle for a while while they got everything organised and the 50-odd uh, passengers were getting a bit twitchy because they were all overloaded. The aircraft's only designed for 32 passengers, but I think there was about 50 people on board. And uh, they circled until they ran out of fuel and then they said, well, we've got to land uh, too bad, so they stopped down the end of the strip and they put everyone in buses and off they went. And that's in the so, uh, the National War Memorial, that place? That's the, it's at the Australian War Memorial, Memorial in, in Can Canberra. In Canberra. Yeah, 140, the first and only Australian Air Force aircraft to be hijacked. I've got to ask you, if we could just for a moment go back to Vietnam, <coughs> can you tell, talk to us briefly about the Tet Offensive and your participation? Yeah, that was January, February, what, 68. Everything was happening the, the length and breadth of the country. We had all the aircraft out flying around the clock, uh, supporting anyone and everyone as best we could. I think on the 2nd of February, I did 17 sorties in one day. The next day, I did 16 sorties. I wasn't carrying too much fat in those days. I was... <laughs> a bit on the trim side, a bit better than I am now. But I just locked, looked at my logbook. For February 68, I did 212 sorties for the month, and it's only a short month, and I flew 114 hours. If we could just jump to 1983, you are posted to Number 1 Squadron. Yes. And you're posted to Number 1 Squadron as a warrant officer, warrant officer engineer. What did you learn from your COs in Vietnam, the various people above you in Vietnam, that helped make you a very successful warrant officer in 1983? What did you, what did you bring from that to enable you to become an effective warrant mm. officer? Well, I don't know how effective I was. You probably have to ask the troops. But I think mainly uh, getting the troops as teamwork, getting them work together, having good morale in the squadron, making sure they're supported in the way of equipment and the manuals, uh, looking after the guys that do the work, support them. If, if ever we had an aircraft come back that we had to work into the night, I always stayed back with them. I was there if they needed meals or equipment. If we went away somewhere, I always made sure all their accommodation and meals were organised before I left and went to the mess myself. Just mainly looking after your troops, uh, making sure they're, they're trained and they're qualified. If there's any mistakes, explain how or where they went wrong. Did you and, and do you see that the role of a warrant officer is to be the link between the troops and officialdom above them? Yeah, 
Well, each squadron has one warrant officer engineer. So I had about 80, 90 odd troops below me and I had the air crew above me who each week I'd go up and I'd get their flying program, what they wanted to do. And I'd look at the aircraft availability and work out how and what we'd do. And then I'd consult with the troops, explain what was going on. And particularly if we were doing trips away, we used to go to Butterworth each April for IADS. So we had to work out equipment spares, Mm. who was going. We did a couple of exercises in Darwin. We did one in Pierce. And then in 84, we had a bomb comp in Idaho at Mountain Home Air Force Base. Uh, We had six aircraft over there. And then after that five or six weeks there, four aircraft and most of the troops came home. But I then took two aircraft and some more troops to um, Eglund Eglund Air Force Base in Florida, and we were doing aircraft trials over there. You have to sit down with the troops and work out all your maintenance because you're isolated you know, you're 10,000 miles from home base. You've got to make sure you, you're not coming up for an engine change when you're on the other side of the world. So yeah. you've got to do all the planning before you go and make sure everything is there and to have the right troops, and particularly when you go to Eglund. We had 12 aircraft at one squadron. We had to start a few months before to get six aircraft to go overseas. Mm. And then just before we were going... I was told we'd been hit with another exercise in New Zealand at the same time with another four aircraft. So then we had to plan on uh, another four being in New Zealand. That took a a fair bit of juggling and organising. You make it very clear that the role of the warrant officer within the Royal Australian Air Force is a pretty significant role to have. Just briefly, I've got to ask you the caribou, and I'll get to to reflect on that in just a moment, but the F-111C and the F-111A, did you have anything to do with those? In 1982, we were told we had to do a program called cold-proof load testing on the F-111s. They were having wing carry-through box failures and uh, all the Americans early in the piece, wings were falling off in flight, things like that, and that held up the delivery of the aircraft to us for a couple of years while they worked out how to overcome this problem. And, in fact, the CSIRO and Commonwealth Aircraft uh, down at Fisherman's Bend in Melbourne. They had a fair bit to do with overcoming the problem with the Americans. And one of the systems or checks that they came up with, normal crack detection systems didn't work on the aircraft. It was the critical parts were D6AC steel, which was very strong but very brittle. The crack detection methods of those days didn't pick up the crack, so they came up with this system of putting the aircraft in a hangar, which was basically a big refrigerator, anchoring it down to the floor, putting hydraulic cylinders under the wings. There was four under each wing. They would pump liquid nitrogen in at minus 60 degrees for about two or three hours to freeze the aircraft to simulate the aircraft flying at 40,000, 50,000 feet. They had a computer program where the Hydraulic cylinders would then load up under the wings and stress the aircraft. The wingtips would go up three and a half feet. That's over a period of a couple of hours. It's all very slow. And the wings would be be bent up 
and then back to neutral, then they pull them down 18 inches. F-111 wing isn't that long. So when you see the deflection on the wingtips of what this torture test, as I call it, but that validated the, the integrity of the wing carry-through okay. box and other components so of the, it. So the Australian CSIRO and the others, they had a rather significant role in making that an effective plane. Well, that was back in the early 70s to overcome the initial problem. Okay. Which some of it was the machining and how it was done. So by the time we got to 1982, they'd worked out that the aircraft could be good for, say, 2,000 flying hours. Our aircraft got to that stage, so I was selected to take the first group to Sacramento to do this cold-proof load testing on our aircraft. Now, up to 1982, we'd lost four F-111s here. At that stage, the Americans were retiring their A models because they'd been in service for 10 years or so. So they rang us up and said, would we like to purchase four of their retired A models to replace the four that we'd lost? We said yes. So while I was at Sacramento, we accepted four of the A models from Mountain Home Air Force Base and we did the acceptance checks on those. The only problem was up to that stage, I think the Americans or at Sacramento had done about 800 cold-proof load tests on all their fleet of F-111s. So our first aircraft or the first one we put in to do the cold-proof test on it was the, the A model. And when they were stressing it, there was a loud bang and the wing fell on the ground and it broke the wing off. And that was the first failure that they'd had in all the aircraft that they'd tested. And then it was a bit of a bun fight between who was going to pay for the second-hand aircraft. Was it our responsibility that we'd bought it or was it the Americans that they'd sold us a dud aircraft? And the solution? It was a bit above my pay scale at that stage. I was still a flight sergeant. Okay. So that was flicked past to higher authority and the air attache in Washington and the Pentagon. When it initially happened, we just wrapped the aircraft up, put them aside, and went on with testing our aircraft. And then a couple of months later, I was told to unwrap the A models. The problem had been solved and uh, put them back into service. And uh, to this day, I don't know who or how or what happened. I didn't need to know. And when I came back at the end of my... Uh, detachment over there about May 82, we brought the first two A models back with us. We followed them across the Pacific. John, your retirement was in January 1985, but as you look back, how strong was your love affair for the Caribou? It was a bit of a love-hate relationship because, as I say, the engines in particular were oily and dirty, but Given a job to do, the aircraft did a magnificent job. Some of the aircraft, they left Canada in 64 and they didn't get to Richmond till 72. So that is a very long ferry flight and they were flogged for six or seven, eight years in Vietnam. Yeah. All day, every day, fully loaded, going into short strips, unprepared strips, yet you, you couldn't kill them. Uh, they just kept going and going. They were 
bit nothing like- elaborate. They were probably slow. They were noisy, not very comfortable. But if you wanted to go somewhere isolated, like we had three aircraft based in New Guinea, and uh, I did 18 attachments to New Guinea, and I went into 83 airfields. I would assume then that your knowledge and love affair, love-hate relationship with the <laughs> caribou is a little bit like your 17 years spent with the Vauxhall. Yeah, that's yeah. The, uh, the Vanguard. Yeah, with the Vanguard, with the Vanguard, <laughs> yeah, the Vauxhall the Vanguard. Vanguard. Look, John, uh, it's been an absolute honour and privilege and pleasure talking to you about uh, Vietnam. And you, you and, and others we've spoken to have just really highlighted a rather significant role that six airplanes, the Caribous, had in a very important part of Australia's military history in Vietnam. So I want to thank you for your time and congratulate you. As a retired warrant officer, you've done an amazing job and been a real credit to the Royal Australian Air Force. Thank you for your time. Uh, no, it was a pleasure and I was proud of what, uh, not only what I did, what the whole team did. Uh, not only Caribou's F-111s, the whole Air Force. And even now, I'm, I'm president of the 35 Squadron Association and 35 Squadron is up and running again at Amberley with the C-27s. I was out there last week and the, the guys appreciate talking to the old guys. I believe it's one of the most popular squadrons in the Air Force again at the moment uh, with what they're doing. There's a couple of aircraft they were over in Broome last week with the floods. Yeah. They had two aircraft over there going about their job, resupplying all the... Yeah, this is exactly what all the personnel in the Royal Australian Air Force does. John, John right. McDougall, thank you for your time, sir. Pleasure, sir. Thanks, Cameron. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which is one in a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.